that we need to understand that bring clarity, that we need to seek for greater understanding and greater appreciation for what the psalmist is trying to convey to us, David, as he's writing these things. And so, as we mentioned, to say that Psalm 110 is important, again, is an understatement. And what we see that is first put into a prominent position here in Psalm 110 is the notion that Jesus is our King, or that the Messiah is our King. In the very first verse, the Lord, and if you have a translation, you'll probably notice that the Lord, the first Lord says to my Lord, that first Lord, it's in all caps. That is to signify that this is the divine name for God, Yahweh. This is talking about the Father in particular here. That Yahweh is going to install my, that's David, and he has a Lord. David has a Lord. That's going to be significant for us to think about as we continue in our study tonight. But Yahweh, the Father, is going to install another as king. That's not David. That's important for us to just stop and appreciate right here at the outset. That David is acknowledging what God is going to do. That God is going to install someone as king. That he's going to say, God is that sit at my right hand, opening this invitation, this place of honor and position. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. If you continue to acknowledge in the Psalms and the place that the Psalms have in revealing to us the work of God and His plan and through the Messiah in Psalm 2, in the second Psalm, we see that as God is recognizing the nations and the turmoil that's going on in the nations. In Psalm 2 and verse 1, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. And that word anointed is the word Messiah or where we get the word Christ. That these people, the nations, the kings of the earth, that they are opposed to God's anointed one. He goes on to say in verse 6, that speaking about what God is going to do, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Notice in particular verse 7, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So it is apparent that as you read the Psalms, what we are beginning to understand that God's anointed, God's Christ, God's Messiah is going to be God's Son. And He is going to be the one that's set up and established as the King. And so whenever you are reading Psalm 110, and in verses 1 and 2, whenever He talks about the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool for your feet. It says in verse 2, The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. That God's Son is going to be established as the King over this eternal kingdom. He's going to rule with a scepter of righteousness. And that scepter is an important symbol for us to just stop and appreciate. And earlier in the Psalms, in Psalm 45, 
in Psalm 45 and in verse 6. Notice here in Psalm 45 and in verse 6, in this particular psalm, it says a quotation here that we find later on in the book of Hebrews. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And so we see that this idea of a scepter, a king who would have a staff, a scepter, that he says he's describing this as a ruler, a measuring rod, that it's going to be a scepter of righteousness. The rule of God's kingdom is going to be a scepter of righteousness. And so he says in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 1, the Hebrew writer quotes from that particular psalm there in Psalm uh, 45. And in Hebrews chapter 1 and in verse 8, he says, as the Hebrew writer is trying to get us to understand something about Jesus, that He is the divine Son of God, that He has a better name than that of angels, He says in verse 8, but of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and this righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. And so what we begin to see is that it is going to be God who rules. It is going to be God and God's Son. God is going to rule. God's Son is God. He is divine. He is a divine person. And that's something that we begin to understand. And so as... You're reading Psalm 110. What we have to begin to see is that God's anointed, God's Messiah, He's going to reign as King. But He's not just any King. He's a divine person. He is going to be God Himself as well. And so we begin to understand something about God's anointed one. And He's going to serve as King. And that king is pictured in Psalm 110. He's identified as God and as the Son of God who is going to reign over God's kingdom. So important for us to understand the place that Jesus has. Because Jesus, He understands Psalm 110 and He understands Himself to be God's Son. He understands Himself to be God. In the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 22, I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. In, in Matthew chapter 22, this was the last week of Jesus' life. And as He had come to Jerusalem, He was engaging with the religious teachers of the day. He was having debates and discussions with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, and all the religious elite. And in Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 41, it says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is He? They said to Him, the son of David. So far, so good, right? Well, he continues on in verse 43. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. 
And he goes on, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. And Jesus, and I love this passage of Scripture because Jesus is really showing, he, He's kind of outflanking His opponents here. He's showing them their ignorance. Now, it's not that they were wrong in what they answered. Yes, the Messiah was going to be a son of David. The kingship was going to come through the line of David and his lineage. That certainly is well attested in Scripture. But Jesus, He, he throws them a curveball here. He says, Psalm 110, you need to understand this psalm. You need to understand the implications of what are being said in this psalm. Because David, he does not just call him his son. David says, he is my Lord. Which implies something of greater significance that the Messiah is going to be greater than David. He's going to be better than David. He's going to be divine in nature. If he exists before David, if he's going to be greater than David, then this implies that the Messiah was pre-existent to David and greater than David, and so that the Messiah must also be God. And just a few chapters later, in Matthew chapter 26, in Matthew chapter 26, after Jesus had been handed over to the Jews, and as He was before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, in Matthew chapter 26 and in verse 63, they are asking Him who He is. And it says in verse 63, But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to Him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. Because Jesus understood who He was and His person and His role. And He puts all these passages together, allusions to uh, the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. All of these things that are messianic in nature, Jesus He's saying, that is who I am. That the Psalms are about Me. That I am the divine Son of God who is going to rule over the kingdom of God. And it was the final nail in the coffin that eventually got Him sent to the cross. The apostles, they understood Psalm 110 as a passage that was extremely important for shaping and understanding Jesus' identity. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, in that first sermon that Peter preached and the apostles, in Acts chapter 2, and in verse 33, notice what Peter says, words that we are intimately familiar with, I'm, I'm sure, that we've heard quoted very often. 
He says, Peter does, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so what we begin to see here is that Peter and the apostles are saying that Jesus, He is the one who has been exalted to the right hand of God. He is the one who is sitting at that position of power and authority. It wasn't David. It wasn't David that was put at the right hand of God. As great of a king as David was, a man after God's own heart, it was not David. It was Jesus. Which he boldly proclaims in verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God hath made Him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That Jesus is the exalted King with power and authority. And no enemy will survive. He will defeat every enemy that He has. It's an important psalm to help us understand who Jesus is. That He is the King. That He is the One who has been exalted to the right hand of God. He is now reigning on the throne of David. He has fulfilled the promises and the expectations that God had made and that God had said. And now Jesus is reigning. Jesus of Nazareth is our King. Psalm 110 is not a psalm only about Jesus' kingship. You'll notice the title of the sermon. It's the Royal High Priest. Because Jesus is not only holding the office or the position and the title of King, He also holds the position of high priest. As he says in verse 4 of Psalm 110, Psalm 110 and verse 4, that the Lord, that is Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. He's speaking to the king. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That he is going to be a priest while also being a king. And that is something that might sound a little strange, especially if you were a Jew and you were coming across this. Your king and your priest, they, were from, they, they weren't the same. David was from the tribe of Judah. He was obviously excluded from being a priest since he was not from the tribe of Levi. And so you have uh, this idea that is being set forth here in Psalm 110 that the Messiah, the Christ, He's not going to just be holding one office. He's going to hold two offices at the same time. That's something that is treated in extensive detail in the book of Hebrews. But even in the book of Hebrews, while we are given the explanation of how some of that might work, this is still something that was not completely foreign to the Bible. 
I invite you to turn to the book of Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 6 in particular. The book of Zechariah is a really fascinating book. It's sometimes hard to, to understand because it, like the book of Revelation, has a lot of visions and, uh, and has visions of horses and horsemen and things of that nature that sometimes boggle the mind. And there's a lot of weird things that can happen in these visions that Zechariah is given. But what we are told in the book of Zechariah, really his message is pretty simple. He's speaking to the Jewish people as they have come back from captivity. They have come back from Babylon and, the, and because of Cyrus the Mede and his decree that they can go back to Jerusalem, that they can go back and rebuild the temple. Such an important event in the history of the Jewish people. And, and so Zechariah is prophesying about the significance of rebuilding the temple. And he tells them he, uh, there's a Joshua, the high priest, and uh, there are others who he names very explicitly, like Zerubbabel, who's going to be the king, that these men are going to lead the charge. These men are going to be the ones who lead the charge in getting this done. Zerubbabel and Joshua, they are going to build the temple. But then Zechariah throws a curveball. In Zechariah chapter 6, and if you will read with me, beginning in verse 11, the Lord is telling Zechariah, Take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch. And that's, that idea of the branch is filled with messianic implications. Go read Isaiah chapter 11, that the root of Jesse, David, the line of, of David, is going to continue on. And it's going to have messianic implications. Branch, for he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord. But I thought Zechariah has been saying Joshua and Zerubbabel are going to build the temple. Yes, they are. But here we're transitioning to a spiritual temple that this branch is going to build. He says in verse 13, Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Now the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord, the Helam, Tobiah, Jediah, and Hin, the son of Zephaniah, those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. That this branch, the Messiah, the one who's going to come, he is going to hold two offices at the same time. And I believe this is in complete harmony with what we have in Psalm 110 and what the Hebrew writer tells us in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 7. In Hebrews chapter 7, such an important passage of Scripture in which we get some explanation, an exposition of Psalm 110. And where 
At first, the Hebrew writer tells us who Melchizedek is. Yes, Melchizedek, this obscure figure in the book of Genesis, only comes up once in the biblical narrative. But in the book of Genesis, guess what? He's a king and a priest to God Most High. Abraham actually gave ties to Melchizedek. And the Hebrew writer, he's arguing that since Abraham paid tithes, Levi would eventually come forth from the line of Abraham. So Melchizedek is greater than Levi. The priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood of Levi. That's the Hebrew writer's point here as he's drawing an allegory of sorts. And so the Levitical priesthood is lesser than the priesthood of Melchizedek. And the law of Moses, and while it was a law that provided for the people of Israel for a time, it did not allow someone from the tribe of Judah to serve as priest. In Hebrews chapter 7 and in verse 11, it says, Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. He goes on in verse 14, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And he goes on to talk about how Jesus is that priest according to the order of Melchizedek. There has been a change in the law. There's been a change in the order of things. There's been a change in the priesthood. And Jesus, He belongs to a a different order of priests. The order of Melchizedek. He is holding both offices, king and priest, at the same time. The priesthood of Christ, it provides something much better than the priesthood of Levi, the priesthood of Christ that provides a better sacrifice. Throughout the book of Hebrews, we are told time and time again that the animal sacrifices, they were performed annually, year by year. And that they had no power to actually atone sin. In Hebrews chapter 10 and in verse 3, but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And he goes on in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10, talking about how through Jesus and through His sacrifice, through the sacrifice of His body and His blood, in verse 10, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That Jesus and His sacrifice, it was the perfect sacrifice because it was sufficient once for all people for all time. Animal sacrifices, they had to be repeated not just annually, but on a daily basis even. There was this repetition that would always have to be accomplished. And so he goes on in verse 12, 
But He having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. There's our, our favorite verse for tonight. Psalm 110 and verse 1. That when Jesus completed His work as our High Priest, when He made the sacrifice for sin, the sacrifice of Himself, the sacrifice of His body, offering His blood, He sat down at the right hand of God. And because He had a better sacrifice, God gives full forgiveness in the new covenant that Jesus established through His sacrifice. Earlier in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 8, in verse 12, talking about that new covenant, in verse 12, the promise of that new covenant, for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Full salvation, full forgiveness. And the Hebrew writer pictures Jesus as the king and as the priest holding both offices at once. Earlier in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 4, notice what he does here. While he has not extrapolated all these ideas of Jesus serving as king and priest, he has not made a, an affirmative kind of statement at this point in the book of Hebrews about it. In Hebrews chapter 4, the Hebrew writer is just kind of laying that foundation and expectation. He says in verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. So he acknowledges that Jesus is this high priest, our great high priest. Then he goes on in verse 16, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see the connection there that the Hebrew writer has, and that's not by accident. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit. He knows exactly where he's going in Hebrews chapter 7. He's trying to get us to understand that Jesus, yes, He is our High Priest. Yes, He is our King. He is the one who has made the perfect sacrifice, and because of that, He is now sitting on the throne of God. Jesus holds both offices at one time. The council of peace will be between both offices. In fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy and in fulfillment of Psalm 110, which sets forth these ideas of Jesus, our Messiah, as King and our priest. And so the king would not only hold the office of king, he would also hold the position of high priest. It's something that is critical for us to understand and appreciate what he is trying to convey to us here in Psalm 110, setting forth in a very initial way these expectations. But then we also see that the king priest 
the person, the Messiah, holding both of these offices. In Psalm 110, we might say he's not a weakling. <laughs> he's actually very strong. He is someone who is described as extremely powerful. Notice in Psalm 110, in verse 1, Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That the implicit acknowledgement here is that the enemies are going to be downtrodden by the Messiah, by this king and priest. He is going to utterly and completely defeat his enemies. In verse 2, he doesn't just have a scepter. It says, The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter. He is going to be a conquering king who rules over others. In verse 5, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of His wrath. You begin to see the picture? He says in verse 6, He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. And He is going to shatter kings in His wrath. He's going to be filled with wrath. He's going to judge nations and there's not going to be an enemy left behind. The image of corpses I find to be an interesting image. It's probably one that we would care not to think about a whole lot for long period of time. But the fact is, Jesus is demonstrated as a powerful king who's going to completely and utterly conquer every enemy. The king-priest is going to be the final judge of all the living, the righteous and the unrighteous. He's going to rule over all the nations. And that is certainly a theme that we see carried out throughout the rest of Scripture, especially in light of Jesus. Notice, if you will, turn with me to the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 6, in Revelation chapter 6, this is in, again, a very complicated part of Scripture, no doubt with the opening of the seven seals. And if you remember in, earlier in chapter 4 and chapter 5 that with the opening of the seals, there was no one that could open this book with the seals until John he saw the Lamb of God, the Lamb who had been slain. And he describes Him as a Lamb and as the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, all the messianic implications from Isaiah chapter 11 and Zechariah talking about him being the branch. And so as these seals begin to open, there's a lot of visions that come out from these seals, these visions that John is seeing. And in the sixth seal, the opening of the sixth seal, there's a lot of terror that begins to happen. There's a lot of things that begin to take place that seem to describe end of time kind of language. 
And he says in verse 15, Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Think about that for a moment. Who is, whose wrath is on display here? The wrath of the Lamb. This isn't Mary Little had a little lamb here. This is the Lamb of God. The Lamb who had been slain. I think sometimes we would like to think of Jesus as a cuddly little lamb or a cuddly little teddy bear that we might be able to have and to hold and to draw near to sometimes. And we certainly do have a loving relationship and a loving Savior who offers peace and rest, who implores us to come to Him. But if that's our only picture of Jesus, then we need to recognize what else the Scripture has to say. Because the Lamb has wrath. The day of His wrath is being pictured here. And they ask, who is able to stand? And the answer is, not very many. Some are protected. You continue on through chapter 7, and those who receive the seal of God, or they are protected from the wrath of the Lamb. They begin to worship and serve God. And they are found, there's this great multitude, the 144,000 and a great multitude which cannot be numbered. They stand before the throne of God, I believe picturing them in heaven. Their final reward. Those are the ones who are able to stand before God. Because the only place of safety is found in Jesus. Jesus is going to take the position of the final judge. And He's going to judge everyone. When He returns in John chapter 5, Jesus tells us very clearly in John chapter 5 that everyone is going to be raised when He returns. He says in verse 28 of John the 5th chapter, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. We need to be sure that we're part of the resurrection of life. Those who are doing the good deeds. That we are going to be judged based on the things that we have done. Paul makes that abundantly clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and in verse 10, 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We are going to be judged for how we have lived our life, for the things that we have done. We are going to be judged for those things. And Jesus as a prophet, as a teacher of God. It's interesting to consider, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, many of His teachings had a warning about eternal punishment. A lot of people don't like the idea and the notion of God punishing people for all eternity. They would much rather like to get rid of the idea of hell altogether. But Jesus is the one who talks the most about hell. And notice what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Hell. There's doom, there's retribution, there's destruction for those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what Psalm 110 pictures for us. Where David, he writes about the Lord who is our king and our priest, he's going to shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Remember the story of Gideon and his 300 men? And how they were supposed to drink of the water from the brook He destroyed the enemies of God with just a few. Gideon wanted to take a big old army. And God said, nope, that's way too many. Out after a couple of cuts, <laughs> he found, just take 300. That's the illusion here. Only this time, God's going to do it not with 300, but with one. With one king with our Messiah, with our Savior, and with our Lord. He is going to have vengeance and wrath for those who are not doing the will of God. For those who refuse to give their life in obedience to God. They are an enemy of the Lord. And Jesus is going to come and deal out Retribution. In the book of 2 Thessalonians, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, notice what he says. Paul does. 
He says in verse 6, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And this is the just thing for God to do. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. I want you to notice here the retribution that Jesus is going to deal out. It's not just an arbitrary thing. The judgment of God is not accidental. It's not just on those who God does not like or anything of that nature. It is very much conditioned upon those who know God or who do not know God or those who have obeyed the Gospel or for those who do not obey the Gospel. And he goes on, if those who do not know God, if they have not given their life and allegiance and obedience to God, he says in verse 9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. It's not that cuddly image of Jesus that we sometimes have, is it? Sometimes in the pictures of Jesus that we have in art, He looks so much like a pacifist, doesn't He? He looks like He would never harm a fly. It's not what the Bible presents as the picture of Jesus. Jesus is not a weak king. He has the full authority of heaven and earth given to Him. We'd certainly feel more comfortable if Jesus were pictured as that teddy bear that we could squeeze and cuddle with. And Jesus certainly loves us. He died for us. He offers us peace with God and forgiveness of our sins. He is a King who is compassionate and loving. But He is also a King who will judge the wicked. And they will suffer a fate that no one wants. Psalm 110 offers a very clear picture of the Messiah. The Messiah, Jesus, who will rule as our King and as our priest. Thankfully, Jesus is the priest who died and offered Himself as a sacrifice for your sins. Through His sacrifice, there's safety. Through His blood, there's forgiveness. Through His resurrection and kingship, there's righteousness. And you will not have to suffer the fate of eternal destruction if you are found to have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. But if you have not obeyed the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
If you do not have a relationship with God tonight, if you've never rendered obedience and given your life to the Lord, then don't think that you're going to be able to stand on the day of Christ's wrath. You will not be able to stand. You will not be able to hide from Him. We want to help you be ready for that day. We want to help you when Christ returns. We want you to be prepared for the day in which Jesus comes. We want you to come believing in Him, seeking His forgiveness. He died for you and He wants you to find rest for your soul. We want you to come to Jesus today. If there is some way that we can help you this evening, we want you to come now as we stand and as we sing. What will you do with Jesus? The question comes to you, and you must give an answer for something you must do. What shall it be? What shall it be? What shall your answer be? What will you do with Jesus?